Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, the last few weeks, Ravi and I have been talking a lot about the For the People Act, H.R. Uh, 1, and there's nobody better to discuss that subject than our guest today, my friend Tiffany Muller. Tiffany is the president and executive director of Let America Vote and In Citizens United. Probably it's In Citizens United and Let America Vote, but I started Let America Vote, so I put it first. Tiffany is awesome. I've known her a long time. She's from Kansas. She is. Tiffany, I didn't know this part until I, I researched this to write this bio. She was the first openly gay public official in Kansas when she served on the Topeka City Council. I guess I knew it. I just forgot you had been on the Topeka City Council. So... Anyway, c- congrats on that thing that you did, like, you know, well over a decade ago. Uh, and then she went on to work for Governor Kathleen Sebelius, uh, then for the Victory Fund. Uh, I met her when she was the deputy political director for the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee in 2016. She moved on to In Citizens United. Uh, and then in 2019, ECU and LAV merged. And now I'm just a member of her board. Uh, she played a major role in crafting the For the People Act and is now leading the fight to pass it, having recently testified before Congress, in fact, so welcome. Well, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here with both of you today. And every time I hear the piece about serving on the Topeka City Council, I often worry that the coolest thing that I've done in my life is something I did 15 years ago. So uh, it's nice now to be in this fight, fighting to protect our democracy and think that maybe I can finally top what I did when I was like 25. It's don't worry. It's it's not the it, it's not even that cool. No, I'm just kidding. It's, <laughs> no, it was it was very cool. Uh, well, anyway, thanks again. Uh, we always start with the news of the week. So, Ravi, tell us the news of the week. Well, I was going to say a big subject of this podcast is trying to top what we did in our twenties. Anyway, so if you stick around, we could talk about that. But in more dour news, uh, the Georgia legislature uh, passed a. Uh, sweeping series of voting restrictions, and it was signed into law last week. Tiffany, given that we have you here, can you walk us through what was in this legislation and why should we be concerned about it? Yeah, absolutely. And we should all be concerned about what we've seen, not just in Georgia, but across the country, right? That there are 253 bills introduced in 43 states uh, over the past few months to roll back voting rights. And it's the largest assault that we've seen on voting rights since the Jim Crow era. And in Georgia, what they did is they took a two-page bill and basically substituted it with a 93-page bill of 
restrictions on voting rights uh, and passed it and got it to Governor Kemp's desk all within a 24 hour period. The hard work of folks like Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight and New Georgia Project and people on the ground made sure that the bill wasn't as bad as it could be. But it is still a bad bill that specifically seeks to keep black and brown voters from being able to access the ballot box. It does everything from, you know, limiting the amount of time that you can request absentee ballots by mail. It shortens runoff periods. You know, I think the one that a lot of people are talking about is that it even stops uh, people from being able to hand out water to folks who are waiting in line to vote. So first they close down polling locations so that people primarily in communities of color have to wait in very long lines, up to 12 hours to vote. And now they're criminalizing giving water out. I mean, the cruelty really is the point. So I think people uh, across the country should be really outraged about what we're seeing because what we're seeing is nothing but uh, Republican politicians who couldn't win a fair election now trying to rig the rules so that they can win uh, next November. The water thing is such a tell. Yeah. I mean, because because it's like they're they're treating it like voting is a criminal act, like you're you're an accessory to voting. And and so it just I just think it's such a tell about how they see things. So obviously, you know, H.R. 1, the For the People Act is what we wanted to talk about. So I guess the next place to go is would H.R. 1, would it overturn most of what's in Georgia's law? Like, how do those two things interact? Yeah. For everyone who's listening that doesn't know, the For the People Act does, um, it's got four major buckets. So first, it expands the right and access to vote. It makes it easier, not harder to vote. Second, it gets rid of partisan gerrymandering, and it makes sure that uh, voters are choosing their elected officials rather than the other way around. Third, it starts to end the dominance we've seen of big money in politics, of basically billionaires buying elections. And then last, but certainly not least, it says, look, if you're going to be a public official, uh, you shouldn't be corrupt and you should have to follow some ethics standards. Pretty common sense things that, frankly, everyone across America supports. But because these are federal elections laws, it would actually override the state laws that we're seeing passed across the country right now. So basically what the analysis that we've done, it shows that it would override about 90 percent of these voting restrictions that we're seeing across the country. Not all of them. And we absolutely should be fighting the ones that it wouldn't override in court. We should be fighting these things on the ground in the states. But also passing H.R. 1 means that we can actually roll back these voting rights restrictions that we're seeing. And beyond that, actually expand the right and the access to vote, making sure that people have, you know, the right to vote by mail or early voting or automatic voter registration, things that actually look at it as voting is a right, not a privilege. And Tiffany, on that front, if H.R. 1 passes, would that apply to rules about their own state elections, like state legislative elections, gubernatorial elections, or would this only be state law as it as it applies to congressional elections, Senate elections, and the presidential? So the way that it works is that it actually only applies to federal law. However, as uh, Jason would tell you, states don't have the capacity or the ability to run totally separate elections for their state elections as well. So when you have, you know, a congressional election and a governor's election at the same time, uh, then those federal election laws are what's going to preempt these restrictions that we're seeing in state law. But like on something like redistricting, for example, they could still 
that's something they could continue to do, right? Because they hold different processes. So they can, if we prevent uh, Republicans from doing partisan redistricting for congressional districts, they could still turn around, right? And do them for, it would still be huge progress, obviously, but they, we'd still have to fight another battle in each of these state legislatures to wrestle control over the state legislative redistricting. Is that right? I, I think it'd be interesting to see what they did. Uh, yes, technically you are right, but if they set up these independent redistricting commissions, it also seems really hard to run two totally separate processes for redistricting. Um, however, I never put anything past them, which is why we all also have to be really engaged in our state legislative fights, winning back legislative chambers, making sure we have Democratic governors as well who can step into this process. But this would require independent redistricting commissions across the country. And once you've set that up and you've taken the politics out of it, I think it's then hard to also justify running this totally partisan process for your state level elected officials. That being said, I wouldn't put it past them to try it. So we would obviously continue to need to organize and to fight. Yeah, it'll make for an interesting debate because like I'm just thinking in Missouri. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they would totally do it here. Like, they, you know, like they would totally because what's interesting, it's the system here is bad for the state legislative redistricting, uh, but it's not as bad as like the states where the legislature itself just does it uh, like does their own districts. So it'd be interesting to see if they because they technically have an ind- I mean, it's not independent. But anyway, so I think they would have the gall, but it'll, but it'll certainly give us the high ground in the argument. Exactly. Exactly. And I think once voters start to see how much it can help uh, improve our politics on the federal level, I think that demand starts to happen on the state level as well. Well, it seems like one area of this Georgia law that people aren't talking enough about is the fact that it usurps the power of county election boards and and guts the power of the secretary of state and makes the whole process, like basically gives control over partisan politicians, uh, like tremendous power to in, in effect, overturn election results at a time when we've seen they will do so if they have the power to do it. Like these are the same elected officials who are pushing Raffsenberger uh, in Georgia, the Secretary of State, basically to overturn the election results. And where we can't be dangerously close to that happening, even under the old rules. Now it seems like this bill would give that power to the partisan politicians. Is there what's what's our way to stop that? Is there anything in in HR one that currently is or could be? added to stop that? Yeah, I think we should be really concerned about about this particular provision. And there are, I think it's eight or nine other states that are looking at similar provisions where the goal is to literally take out the checks and balances from the system uh, and take power away from, you know, it really was just a few principled elected officials and public officials across the country who helped uphold our election results, right? And what they are trying to do is take that power away from them. Um, not just in Georgia, but we see it in Arizona, we see it in Michigan. We, we've seen it, I think, in about nine different states. This it was not previously addressed in HR1. We are trying to figure out if there are additions or amendments that can be made 
to try to protect against this, but we all should be talking about it, right? That they weren't successful in stealing the election in November 2020, so that's exactly what they're trying to do now. We should absolutely not be afraid of talking about what we are seeing. You know, Republicans are calling HR1 a democratic power grab, when really what we know is that this is about giving power back to the people. But of course that's what they're gonna say because it's absolutely what they're doing across the country right now. Uh, what are our chances of passing this thing? What's what's you probably know more than anybody like the goings on on the Hill. You know, where's President Manchin on this right now? Um, I'm going to tell that joke every day for the for the next. It's really years. good. Still get it. Still get to laugh. I think I uh, did it. I think I did it on the last Let America Vote board call when I asked <laughs> Tiffany this exact question. So I stole it from you. So go ahead. So where are we, Tiffany? Give us some inside info. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the bill has passed the House. It passed the House on March 3rd of this year. Uh, and we had full Democratic House co-sponsorship of the bill. Um, and it then went to the Senate. It was officially introduced in the Senate with 49 co-sponsors. And we had our first hearing in the Senate uh, last week. I was really honored to be one of the witnesses in front of the Senate Rules Committee. And there's no doubt about it. The Republicans came uh, filled with disinformation and misinformation about the bill and loaded for bear, as it were. But here's what we know. The American people are with us on this bill, right? Like, it just makes common sense to try to clean up corruption, get money out of politics, protect the right to vote. Voters are with us on that. So here is where we're at. Uh, we think that we will be able to get all 50 Democrats on the bill. Senator Manchin was a co-sponsor of it in 2019. Uh, we are working out any concerns that there may be on it this time around. Um, so we feel really good about being able to get to 50 Democratic co-sponsors on the bill this time. We know that there is an urgency and a critical need to pass this bill, but I'm and we welcome Republican support and we're not holding our breath. Right. The special interest. There was just a leaked call. What was it yesterday or earlier this week that Jane Mayer at the New Yorker got, which literally had these Republican dark money groups and Coke Network and um, McConnell staffers all talking about the fact that this bill is so popular that they can't run an effective message on it. So the only thing they can do is hold the Republican caucus in the Senate to stand against it. When presented with a very neutral description of H.R. 1, People were generally supportive. The most worrisome part is that conservatives were actually as supportive as the general public was. And so, you know, everything that people just went through about the under the dome type strategies on this, you know, we think makes a lot of sense simply because winning over public support for this is actually incredibly difficult. And that's what they're spending all this dark money doing is trying to implement voter suppression and trying to keep Republican senators from joining onto this bill because the voters are with us. I think because of what the attacks that we're seeing on our, our democracy across the country, because of the urgency of the moment that we are in in order to protect people's fundamental right to vote, I think we're going to see this bill become law. I've never been more optimistic than I am right now. What about the filibuster? Yeah, I this bill has to become law. Failure is not an option. And we will, again, welcome Republican support if they're willing to give it. But I think that it's going to take a rules change to get it done. Um, and we should not let some arcane racist rule stand in the way of protecting people's foundational right to vote. It's so when you think about it, it's so crazy that like what they're saying on that call, they're saying like, 
we can't even convince Republican voters of this stuff. So what we have to do is we have to convince 50 Republican Americans who who happen to work at the U.S. Senate, who are senators. Like we have to convince 41 of them <laughs> and then we can keep the law from changing because that's our only hope. Like <laughs> that's nuts. It is nuts. And how are they going to convince them? They're going to convince them through all of this money that's going to either funnel directly into campaigns or into outside groups or into super PACs or these promises of uh, gerrymandering and other things in order to to rig the game to win power. Right. Like that's what it is. They're like the ultimate special interest group because they're, like, <laughs> they're not like convincing them with the arguments they would have used on Americans. They're just like, no, you, you particular people are affected in your current jobs by this. Anyway, yes. so yeah, I completely agree. It's like, come hell or high water, have to do it. I've been a subscriber to The Economist for many years now, and every time I read it, I feel a million times smarter, almost like I'm getting my own presidential daily briefing. What's really cool is that The Economist now has podcasts, including Checks and Balance, which is a podcast from The Economist that I think our listeners are really going to like. Yeah, what I love about this podcast is that it's very much like The Economist. It's like, yeah, look, you can get the top level stuff on cable news or you can get it in the newspaper. We're going to go deeper. So when you look at some of the things they've gotten into, like, is the Supreme Court too political? Why is Florida key to national politics? What's actually preventing a faster and fairer vaccine rollout? Like, they're going to take you to that next level. There's so much depth in it. And this podcast is the same way. Each week, John Perdoe, The Economist's U.S. editor, tackles a new topic that's shaping American politics and digs into the country's complex history to explain what's actually going on today. And he's joined by experts and economist correspondents from around the U.S. to talk through the ideas and data influencing the direction this country is headed. So for a fair-minded and global perspective on democracy in America, subscribe to The Economist's Checks and Balance podcast now. That's Checks and Balance from The Economist. Subscribe and listen for free on Acast, your podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shout out to, to Norman Atkins, a longtime mentor of mine who also happens to be the father of Shira, who's the co-founder of the company that produces this podcast, Wonder Media. He asked her the other day, he's like, I need to try these athletic greens because I could just tell how into it Ravi is. Trying to preserve our democracy is my number one goal in life. And number two, a very close second, is uh, trying to make sure that as many people as possible take Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid with digestion, and supports a healthy immune system. And right now, Athletic Greens is doubling down on supporting your immune system and offering our audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit our link today. So um, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash majority and join health experts, athletes, health conscious go-getters, podcast hosts around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, visit athleticgreens.com slash majority and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. On that front, um, you probably can't answer this fully, but what is... What's your sense of Mansion and, and Cinema on the filibuster? Because I think there's two steps, right? Get their support for the underlying bill, and then convince them that this bill is worthy of changing the rules. 
uh, in the Senate for. Um, do you have any sense of where we stand on that? Yeah, I mean, most of those are going to be internal caucus deliberations over time. I will tell you, though, for everyone listening, uh, we need you to contact your member of the Senate, no matter if they are already on the bill or not on the bill, if they are Republicans or if they are Democrats, because we basically need every single senator to not be able to turn around without hearing about how critical it is to pass this bill, because we need them, including Democrats who are already on the bill, including Democrats who are champions of the bill, to take that energy and that urgency to those internal caucus meetings and to say, like, hey, guys, I'm hearing about this constantly from my constituents. You know, this is the same kind of organizing we all did to help save health care in 2017. Like, that is what we need. We need them not to be able to turn around without being able to hear it. And that pressure is going to make sure that when the time comes, we have the support to be able to pass this bill, no matter how the rules are modified. Right. There's lots of discussion about that. And I think lots of good options on the table that people smarter than me about Senate rules and procedures have have put out there. But our job has to be, how do we make sure that people understand how critical this bill is, holding this whole bill together, passing it to reform our democracy is? And the only way we're going to do that is by all of us joining forces and speaking out together. So you can go to incitizensunited.org and we have a whole take action page and everything from emailing your senators to calling them to letters to the editor to signing up to join us for texting banks or phone banks. because the next two months are going to be really critical in this fight. Yeah. Talk about that for a second, because I think most people think of this as, well, you know, it's not until November of 2022 that we have the next elections. But talk about why the next two months in particular are so critical. Yeah. So we have a few things happening all at the same time. So first, we are heading into a redistricting year. And because of the pandemic, the redistricting data to the states has actually been a little bit delayed, which means we have an opportunity to get independent redistricting put into place for the 2022 election. Um, And let's be clear about what that would do. There are 18 seats that Republicans hold in the House uh, of Representatives right now that they shouldn't hold just because of gerrymandering, right? And we know that they are saying that they will just use redistricting to take back control of the House if we don't put into place fair maps and get rid of the partisan gerrymandering. Um, So because of that delay, we actually have this moment in time to get independent redistricting put into place, but we have to act soon. Uh, Number two, we're gonna see all of these state legislatures across the country moving towards adjournment in their legislative session. And that means those 253 bills in those 43 states are going to come up to a critical head and we're going to see some of them pass. We're going to see Arizona pass some voting restrictions. We're likely going to see Michigan pass voting restrictions. We're going to see this in multiple states. Um, So the crisis that we're seeing in Georgia is about to play out in other places as well. Um, And then on top of that, the Senate is in district work period for the next few weeks But then they come back and they're actually going to mark up the bill in committee, um, which is when they take up amendments and improvements to the bill. And that's going to happen at the end of April, beginning of May. So you have all of these pieces working together to force this really critical moment. So we think that the end of April and all of May is going to be a really crucial moment for all of you to really raise your voices and to act and to help us get this thing over the line. Wow. You just pump me up. Woo! Let's do this. Let's save democracy. Me, just give me chills. Let's do this. No, big, no bigger fight. No bigger no fight. No bigger fight. 
Well, Tiffany, thank you so much uh, for everything. We really appreciate everything you're doing. And, and we've got listeners in, in every state in the country. And you know, I just want to underscore what you said, which is no matter who your senators uh, and even, you know, we got to still go back and keep our members of the House on board, right? Because we have a thin margin in the U.S. House. And so chances are this bill will go back to the House if, if things usually work out the way that they are, if there's significant changes made. So no matter who your rep is, uh, don't take anything for granted. Um, contact them, tell them how you feel. That's right. Um, and thank you both so much for having me on. And like I said, you can go to incitizensunited.org or letamericavote.org and find out how to get involved in this fight. And uh, we're going to do it. I, and fixing our democracy is going to allow us to tackle every single big priority that we face. Everything from prescription drugs to infrastructure to gun violence to climate change, um, that this is the foundational piece of work that we need to do. So so thanks so much to both of you for being such leaders and such big voices in this fight. And it was a real honor to join you today. I feel great after that conversation, honestly. All right. And this week in misinformation, we've heard you listeners. There's, there's a lot of talk at the national level and around your metaphorical dinner tables uh, about what's happening at the border. And last week, Biden held his first formal press conference uh, of the administration, and he was not asked a single question about COVID, despite the fact that he opened the news conference by uh, making a big announcement that the uh, administration uh, will administer 200 million doses of the vaccine in the first 100 days of the administration. And he was asked a ton of pressing questions, like whether he's going to run for re-election and whether Kamala Harris is going to be on his ticket. No COVID, once again. But what the press did ask about was the situation at the border. I'd like to circle back to immigration, please. Uh, How are you choosing which families can stay and which can, can go, given the fact that even though with Title 42, there are some families that are staying? She sent her son to this country because she believes that you are not deporting unaccompanied minors like her son. President, we too have been reporting at the border. And just Will like you commit to allowing journalists to have access to the facilities that are overcrowded moving forward. So when can we expect your promise of things getting better? All right, so Jason, it seems that the press has adopted the Republican framing of this border situation and seems to be focusing on it in, in to some extent um, at the expense of COVID. What should we make of this? So I think it's a couple of things. I think, first of all, it's a reflection of success on COVID that things are going really well and that the press corps, like the rest of the country has a sense of like, Oh, okay. This seems, seems to be something that's at least in hand. If it's not over, but it's in hand, there's some control over it. So they're like, let's move on to other things. And then why do they not ask about other things that are actually something that the average American is thinking about a lot? I, it reminds me of something that happened way back when I was in the state house. And, and I, I may have told this story on this, on the show before, but um, it's it's when I learned that reporters they're just as easily victimized by the inside the bubble mentality as politicians are, right? I mean, they are they are living amongst all the politicians. They're literally in the same buildings uh, all the time. They're running in the same social circles. So back when, when I was, uh, I think in my first term in the state legislature. There, the Kansas City Star ran this big story called House for Sale, and it, and it was a series that went on for several days. It was front page of the Star, and it was all about all of the unethical behavior down in the in the General Assembly in Jefferson City and all of the loopholes in the law and how many problems there were with the campaign finance laws and the lobbying laws. 
And I remember the star ran this and a bunch of politicians had a very predictable reaction, which is they were like, well, there was nothing in there that people didn't know. And I would say, well, no, actually everything in there was stuff people didn't know. It just wasn't stuff that people in this building didn't know. But what really surprised me was that when I would talk to other members of the press corps who didn't work at the Kansas City Star, the other papers in the state, they would all say the same thing. They were like, I don't really get it. It wasn't anything that people didn't already know. And that's what this strikes me as. Like, sometimes you can be so inside the bubble, and it's hard to imagine being more inside the bubble than working at the White House, even if you're a reporter, that you forget that your job is to tell people about the stuff that you already know because you work there, but they don't know because they don't work there. And so that's why the questions oftentimes reflect stuff that they want to know the answer to because they already know the answer to all the other stuff that Americans don't know the answer to. Just because the press knows the ins and outs of something doesn't mean that the voters know everything about it. And let's bring that back now to the issue of the day. Uh, what's happening right now is that because of the the press basically chasing the story as a as the national issue. Now, this is a major important issue, but the question is how important is it relative to other things going on in the country? We Some of our listeners are dealing with this now in their communities where it's trickling down. Uh, so let's listen to a voicemail from one of our listeners where he talks about some of the things he's dealing with on the ground. Hey there, my name is Jason uh, from Indianapolis. I'd love to hear some sort of unbiased take on the supposed border crisis. I've got some... Uh, Members of my family that are convinced that uh, Biden is letting thousands, if not more, of uh, illegal immigrants cross the border, whether they have coronavirus or not. Uh, and I'd love to, to get some sort of um, reasonable ammunition to discuss that with them. With. So, uh, yeah, anything about that border crisis? Thank you. You actually shared with me a really great Washington Post article about this that I think people would find uh, useful, which is not usually something I say. You know, usually you're you're the one saying like, here's the resources where you can find the facts to push back, uh, and I'm the one saying like, well, you know, here's a clever analogy that you can use to. Relate. I know. Do I need to? Do I need to come up with something humorous and 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 pithy for this? Yeah, you need a, you need yeah. a clip and you need a down home saying or something. But but yeah. Um, I actually think it's it's the most useful way here because the fact is that people have a pretty set idea about this and and unfortunately it is overly baked in in race and that kind of thing. So it is hard to break through on this. And so one of the I think best hopes you have is just cold hard facts. And so if you if you look at how to compare this, like the, the Washington Post article laid out the idea that if you compare surges in immigration in migrancy, if you compare it uh, one month to the next, you're completely missing just the seasonal changes that just, you know, when you get to a point where um, the winter isn't so harsh, uh, but it's not yet time where the summer is so harsh, where the desert is a place that you'll cross, that typically this is a period where you have an increase in uh, migrant apprehensions and that kind of thing. But the point that the article makes is you can't... And just to pause on there, just to be yeah. Jason Kander here for a second, to give you a metaphor that you could <laughs> use with your friends. It's like comparing electricity usage from one one month to the next, right? It's like obviously in this in August you're going to be using more electricity than in October. Uh but it, the question is how much does your August compare to the August before, right? 
Gr- I'm gonna run. I'm gonna run for Secretary of State. I'm Missouri now. knocked I'm out. What a great, what a great analogy. Forget everything I said about this being a difficult issue to analogize. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the point it made, and it and it also made the point that right now you can't even compare March, April, February timeline of of this year to last year because last year everything was shut down because of of COVID, right? And so and that now there's a bunch of um like bunch of people who have been waiting a year, and so that's adding to it as well. So when they compared uh, this time frame now to the same time frame in 2019 under the Trump administration, they found that under Trump, the number was actually higher. So it, the idea that it's Biden's policies that's causing it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And to add color to that, 2019, it was higher at the moment when you, when you look at families crossing. We'll, we'll talk about unaccompanied minors in a second because there is something unique going on there right now. Then 2020, because of COVID, like you're saying, we weren't letting anybody in. And now there's this all pent up demand, yet still the numbers aren't exceeding 2019. But they could, right? We don't know. There's a few months. This, uh, Based on the data that you're sharing, uh, at the end of May, the trend starts to reverse. And that's when you start to see a decline. So there's going to be an increase over the next few months. So everybody should prepare themselves for this. And the question is, is the media going to contextualize this properly for people? I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, So we're going to have to do that work for people. But the unaccompanied minors point is a little different. There are more unaccompanied minors right now uh, at the border than in any of those years. Now, it is following the same trend. So there are more now than there were. Uh, The question is why? And it could just be that COVID, you know, there's something going on where like there's a huge spike like everything else. And there just happens to be more of a spike of unaccompanied minors. Uh, But it is more. But to the listener... We are testing people. There, there hasn't been a change to the COVID testing protocol under Biden. And there's always there's always a little murky when it comes to whether kids get tested or not. So I want to put that aside. But that was true under Trump and that's true under Biden. But um, adults get tested for COVID crossing the border and they quarantine anybody 14 days before they decide, like before they do anything, no matter what the disposition of that person is, they quarantine people for 14 days. And so there's no like, you know, run of COVID positive people crossing the border and if we keep up some of the policy in some of these border states like Texas, there might be an opposite problem where if I were Mexico, I'd be concerned. Um, but anything to add to that, Jason, before we maybe we should talk in a second about like the true humanitarian issue at the border because it's real. But at least from the factual standpoint, this is there's no evidence that because Biden's a nice guy, people are crossing the border more. You know, if you're an adult, there are a lot of things you regret about your childhood, like the instrument you didn't learn, the skill you didn't pick up, et cetera. I think number one on my list and a lot of people is is just not having paid enough attention in foreign language class. Sorry, Miss Taono. Um, great teacher, by the way. I just I wasn't there for her, you know, but um, it's not too late. There's a lot of data out there that you can learn to be not just proficient, but fluent in a foreign language late in life. And the best way you could do so is to our sponsor, Babbel, which is the number one selling language learning app in the country. And, and there's a reason why, because it's addictively fun and an easy way to learn a new language. I've been picking up Italian through this. Uh, these are 15 minute lessons that make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Babbel designs their courses with practical real world conversations in mind, things you'll get to use in everyday life. 
Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. And with Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54 for an extra three months free. Babbel, language for life. If you have 30 free minutes, you never have to worry about a break-in at home ever again. That's how quick and easy it is to set up a security system from Simply Safe. It's the kind of thing that is so easy to do, you can do it during a Netflix binge, watching the game, or listening to a certain podcast. Simply Safe is incredibly easy to customize for your home. Just go to simplysafe.com/majority54 and taking this kit out of the box and putting it up. It was actually an enjoyable experience, you know, because you think about these security systems, you know, from our childhood, you know, there's like wires running through the walls and everything like that. And there has to be like a special person who comes and does it kind of like your cable, but you can kind of just listen to music and put these things up. They look kind of cool and you put them up um, in different parts of your apartment and you get to choose where they are, which really gives you a sense of just where your valuable belongings are to begin with. And so you can kind of just take inventory of your life. You can easily choose the exact sensors you need or get help from one of their experts. It'll get to your house in about a week, which means by this time next week, you and your whole family can go to bed knowing your home is being guarded. And Simply Safe is a small, easy step to make sure everyone feels safe at home. So go to simplysafe.com slash majority54 today to customize your system and get a free security camera. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com slash majority54. What the Republicans are working hard to do is they're trying to say, look, you all complained about children in cages for for two years and your guys now doing the same thing. Right. And trying to say, well, look, because there are kids in these detention centers. Well, first, a couple of things. The the most important uh, term here is unaccompanied minor. Right. Like there is an increase. But it's in unaccompanied minors. It's in minors coming across without their parents, right? Um, and and so that is a giant, enormous difference. It, I'm not arguing. I mean, it, no, I am arguing that it is at least slightly less tragic because Trump was creating unaccompanied minors, right? He They had a policy of if a family came across, separating the children from the parents. Like, that is a world of difference from kids are coming across without their parents. Like there is a difference there and it's a really important one. It doesn't mean that like, oh, this unaccompanied minor thing isn't a problem, but just don't let people conflate those two things and say they're the same because they're definitely not. Yeah. And once again, you know, to parrot something I said a couple of weeks ago, I would love to see some of the GOP politicians actually try to solve this problem, right? Like if you look at the numbers, they're, sta- they're staggering right now. There are more unaccompanied minors coming across the border then right now we are able to place in foster uh, care facilities with sponsors or in any other safe uh, environment. Obviously, the logistical challenge is huge. I'm not trying to make an excuse for anybody. Like we need to do better. We need to do faster. You know, like to use your phrase, like this is the greatest, most wealthy country in the history of the world. Uh, we need to do better, and that includes that includes Biden, and that includes the U.S. Senate. But speaking of the U.S. Senate, Ted Cruz was accompanied by 18 other Republican senators, including John Cornyn, Susan Collins, and Lindsey Graham. Uh, and, you know, he wore like a safari jacket and hat uh, at the border and was like cruising on like some kind of raft. This is like his big adventure, I guess, for the week. And he said, uh, this is his quote, he said, on the other side of the river, uh, we've been listening to and seeing cartel members, human traffickers, 
right on the other side of the river, waving flashlights, yelling and taunting Americans, taunting the border patrol. And so he's trying to kind of mix these issues right now. And and he was touring this facility, trying to point out a lot of things about this facility and make a political point to the point where one of the facility staff members cut him off and said, hey, sir, this is not a zoo, which uh, is just really sad. Um, that's where our politics have taken us right now, Jason. But what are the politics of this? Like, what, what, what do we do with these people like Cruz? 18 other Republican senators. So this is not just Cruz. Well, I, I think your point about you'd like to see them try to solve it, right? Because interestingly, they're consistent on this. Whether there is a Democrat uh, or a Republican in power, they're interested in just talking about how bad it is, right? And then they like have a made up, you know, unworkable solution when there's a Republican in charge, right? Which is like, we're just going to build a wall. Well, I mean, okay. But really, they just want to make people afraid of it. Uh, so yeah, so Cruz went and did like his his weirdly Steve Irwin impression where he, you know, like, crikey, look at all these traffickers or whatever the hell it was. And it's enormously hypocritical. Like if you actually listen to what he says, on the one hand, he's trying to lament what he calls the humanitarian situation, right? Which he didn't care about at all when Trump was separating kids from their parents, right? He was, he had no problem with that. But now, now that it like, that Biden is trying to, uh, now that they basically have the situation that they've had there for several years, now he's concerned about the humanitarian situation, which I would be fine with that 180 if he then didn't, like two sentences later, say that the, the whole thing going on here is that the traffickers know that Biden will let these people go, right? Like, so let me get this straight. Because these people are being detained, that's not humanitarian, and that should change. But I'm going to make up the fact that Biden's letting people go and just letting them loose in the country, which they're not. But I would be against that, too. Like, so he doesn't actually like have a point. He just wants to criticize from all ends. It also goes to a point that I think it's difficult for people on either side of the aisle to talk about. But it is, to me, the most obvious answer here, which is you gotta, you gotta help Mexico, man. I mean, like, that's the thing that nobody's wanted to talk about for several years. And we've had trade deals with Mexico and we do things, we have policies that are meant to empower Mexico as long as they also help us. But like, nobody's pouring across the border from Canada. It's fascinating to me that we've gone this many years going, what do we do about the fact that this country to our south is a place that people desperately want to leave and come here? Oh, what do we do not to keep them from wanting to leave that country? What do we do to keep them from being able to get into this country? Like, at some point, we have to start asking the question of, is it in our best interest to make Mexico a place that people don't want to leave because it's doing better? And you know, we're in a position to empower Mexico economically to do that. Yeah. And like you say economically, and we could just also just stop doing bad things. Like I'd say, like we can get the, we can get the drug issue under control in a sensible way in our own country. And we could stop sending guns across, which creates more violence and political and, and other types of asylum seekers in Mexico. Like in almost every corner um, of Mexico, there are legitimate asylum seekers because this violence has taken over to such an extent. And we're the, we're the people responsible for that violence, but nobody that the, the, the party of responsibility in the Republicans don't seem to want to take responsibility over this issue uh, because it, 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 if they look in the mirror, it, it doesn't look really good for them on this. Well, and honestly, like I use the, the analogy of like, you don't see this happening in Canada. If you did see it happening in, happening in Canada, I bet they'd be more motivated to do something about it because Canadians are white. Like if we're being real here, you know, and they don't see humanity when they look south of the border. 
Quarantine Corner, Jason. What I was actually going to talk about for Quarantine Corner is this new show, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, the new Marvel show. I was like pretty skeptical. I was like, okay, we're going to serialize something that's basically going to be a lot like the movies. What uh, network is it on? I've it's never on, heard of it. It's on Disney Plus. So it's like, it's oh, a continuation. Yeah. So it's a continuation of the Marvel movies, but with uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And we've been watching it with True and like, man, I, I know it's like, not cool, I guess, like sort of to, or it's it's cooler to be like, well, you know, superhero movies and superhero content. I'm sorry. They're all really good. They're all just so good. And and it's just like every episode is a little Marvel movie and uh, they're enjoyable. Well, I got to go check that out. You know, I'll, I'll do a show recommendation as well. It's a samurai kind of docu-series. It's like a drama series. I, I, I don't know what you exactly call it, but it's basically where they do like a it's almost like a documentary, but there's like a dramatization of everything that they're talking about. And I think it's like four or five episodes all about this critical period uh, in Japanese history where, where the country consolidated. Uh, and it was a it was a big transition of, of just the culture of samurai. And I so if you just like look up samurai on Netflix, uh, it's it'll come up and it is um, the age of samurai battle for Japan. Um, so that's the name of it. And. It is so fascinating and the it's just the rules of engagement just of like uh what what it meant to be honorable or not what happened in battle or not it's just mesmerizing uh and you'll want to watch every episode all at once The Age of Samurai Battle for Japan also by the way sounds like it would be an awesome video game All right for grabbing or Ravi you got one The team over at Arena my old organization that I, I'm still on the board of is holding two trainings uh, for Arena Academy, which is our general big academy for anybody who's interested in working in politics, and then Academy 201, which is a little bit more of an expert level training. And so the next academy will be held uh, June 10th to 14th, uh, and the deadline is April 25th. And so if you're interested in getting involved in politics or if you've already been involved in politics and you want to level up your skills, you can go to arena.run slash academy dash apply. Well, that's a lot. I think if you just go to arena.run, you'll be able to find it. Um, but arena.run slash academy dash apply. Uh, and you could uh, apply and you could put in a little note section that you're a majority 54 listener. And I'll tell the team over there to make sure that they flag those applications. Yeah, and I would just say um, it's it's really quality stuff. So I would encourage everybody to do it. And even if you're somebody who you're like, well, I don't really work in politics, like that's the point. Uh, that's why you should go do it. It's for people who don't really work in politics yet. Um, now you heard we responded. We heck, we spent a good portion of the show on a voicemail, uh, a question from Jason in Indiana. So thank you to him. It could be you next week. You can call us at five zero eight six eight seven two five eight nine. 508-687-2589. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, Ravi, I forgot to ask you how I saw on Instagram you went to the wave pool in New Jersey to surf. How did it go? It was good. It was very, very hard because when you gener- when you surf in the ocean, you could see a wave coming from a long time away. But in this thing, it literally pulses right behind you, like a foot behind you. So you have to be really, really fast. All right, so you can see that kind of stuff at uh, Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Thanks again uh, to Tiffany Muller for coming on and talking about the For the People Act. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. 
Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.